Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege to welcome you to the Culture Watch podcast. This, of course, is a news and current events podcast of Speaking for Him. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to these episodes, and I hope that you will share them with your family and friends as you feel led. Because when we share with family and friends, uh, that increases the number of people who are listening to this podcast and the related audio content, which I share. On Mondays, you get the Culture Watch podcast. On Wednesdays, you get the Speaking for Him podcast, which has been around much longer and is going to be featuring episode 561 this week. I know that's hard to believe. And on Fridays, on weeks when I have preached, I produce and edit the sermon for the previous week and release it on Fridays. So that's a rundown of the way we do content around here. If this is your first time listening to a Speaking for Him related podcast, welcome. I want to say a word before I jump into the news of the week of just immense thanks for everyone who listened to last week's Speaking for Him podcast. I had the privilege of sharing the story of my dear friend, Cameron, who God led out of the transsexual lifestyle. She spent, I think, a year and a half believing that God put her in the wrong body and claiming that she was a man. And then she realized that no matter what she did to herself, she would never be a man. And she embraced who God made her as a woman and gave her life to Christ. And she did a 180 change. She's a beautiful, vibrant woman of God. And I'm so privileged that I got a chance to tell her story. Well, it turns out that almost 1,100 people have listened to that story. This is the most viral podcast I have ever had. And I keep waiting for the listens to slow down. But it seems like every time I hit the refresh button, you know, there's at least five to ten new listens. And I know that's a slight exaggeration, but that is basically how fast it has gone. And I've just been blown away every single time I look at the totals because I know that many more people are listening and hopefully being changed for good by the love and redemption of Jesus. And of course, I did get a lot of negative uh, contact because of this as well. Uh, there were a lot of people, I'm assuming, who were at least associated with Cameron who had some pretty vile and explicit things to say about me, about Cameron, and about her parents. And that was really rough for me to take at first. But I know that I know that I know that we are preaching the truth and that we are doing so in love, and that no matter how loving you are, sometimes the truth will be seen as hate for those who hate the truth. So I just wanted to give a huge thank you to everyone who listened and everyone that helped me out, because I had several friends say they were praying for me, and some even jumped in the comments and engaged people in ways that I did not feel equipped to do. So I'm very thankful for that. With that being said, let's get into some news for the week of July 2nd. Well, the first story that I want to bring to your attention is the Supreme Court 
choosing this past week to strike down affirmative action in the classroom, specifically on college campuses. The 63 decision split the court along ideological lines. This will have ripple effects across the country, forcing schools to rewrite their admission policies. The president says he's directing the Department of Education to look for other ways to build more inclusive and diverse student bodies. Today's ruling isn't expected to change admission at Washington State schools, but for thousands of students preparing to write 2024 college applications, this ruling could have an impact. Fox 13's Matthew Smith joining us now. So, Matt, this changes four-plus decades of precedent. And the opinions in this case are fiery. Frankly, 237 pages of this document include personal attacks. Justice Clarence Thomas singling out the newest member of the court, Justice Kentanji Brown Jackson writing, as she see things, as she sees things, we are inexorably trapped in a fundamentally racist society with the original sin of slavery and the historical subjugation of black Americans still determining our lives today. Jackson firing back, writing, Justice Thomas ignites too many straw men to list or fully extinguish here. The takeaway is that those who demand that no one think about race refuse to see, much less solve for, the elephant in the room. Now, if you can't tell with that, this was a court once again split along party lines. But this has real-life impacts, including students in our state. This is a small setback, but the the revolution towards an, uh, an America that feels like home for all of us each and every single one of us, I don't think has um, has diminished. That's Sharon Navis, executive director of Equity and Education Coalition, reacting to today's six to three ruling. The ruling was focused on admissions for Harvard and UNC, but it's expected to have other schools around the country scrambling to change admissions policies. Experts say it will likely lead to college campuses becoming whiter overnight. In our state, public institutions can't take race into consideration. UW's president among those reacting, though, saying, quote, we will review the Supreme Court's action and any impacts on the UW. It's just a bad decision. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal telling me today it re-energizes a push to expand the Supreme Court, a sentiment that became a bigger talking point roughly a year ago following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Expansion of the court is something that has happened before. It isn't uh, unprecedented. And in fact, it is also something that has helped to bring the court back in line and to help the court understand that they don't have unilateral ability to bring political considerations into their decision making. But in the short term, those on the ground say this decision will have sweeping real world impact. This country was was based on the idea that education is the foundation to exit poverty, and yet we're making it harder and harder for those who currently live in poverty to get out of poverty. Novice, one of many pointing out today, diversity isn't just about race, that these discussions should also be about neurodiversity, disability, gender, and more. As she and education experts have been pointing out today, white women have benefited from affirmative action more than any other group when it comes to college admissions. In the newsroom, Matthew Smith, Fox 13 News. So much to discuss here. First of all, I want to bring to your attention something that was said toward the end of this clip. And that was that the Supreme Court needs to know that they cannot make political decisions from the bench. 
The Tenth Amendment of the Constitution says that anything that the Constitution does not explicitly state should be handled by the states. That is the number one main argument of the Supreme Court overturning Roe, is that the states should decide this. And guess what? The liberal states still have the 100% full right to murder children. They still have the 100% full right to kill babies. That was not affected by the fall of Roe because they shirred up their position. What the courts were saying is that the conservative states who want to shore up their pro-life position have just as much right to do that. And I love the fact that we have this person saying that the Supreme Court should not make law from the bench, and they're trying to say that that is what this affirmative action decision did, while at the same time supporting Roe, which was the king of legal decisions from the bench followed closely with the decision on gay marriage which was also legislating from the bench letting 32 states know that their codifying of marriage between men and women in their constitutions means nothing so let's be careful shall we when we say that the courts shouldn't make legislation Now let's talk about the specifics of affirmative action. I would like you to answer this question honestly, and if you want to actually send feedback into the show, I would appreciate hearing from you. My email address is andrew at speakingforhim.com. That's andrew at speakingthenumberforhim.com. I would like you to tell me whether you really think that getting into a school because of your race is a good thing. Where is the sense of accomplishment for that? Here's the thing. As academic institutions, it makes all the sense in the world for colleges to have academic standards for entrance. To take you back to my college days, the first college program that I entered into said that in order to stay in the program, you had to have no less than a 3.0 GPA. That is a B average. If you got below a B, it was not considered passing and you had to take the class over again. You had to have a B average for the classes. I don't remember if there was a minimum for my second Uh, program that I was in with Louisiana Baptist University, but I do know that by that time I was used to getting A's and B's because of the standard that had been set with the first degree program, and I ended up with all A's except for two B's, which included a history class and their orientation class of all things. And I want to tell you this, as a disabled American, the thing that I most did not want from the academic institutions that I was going to college for is a break in my grade. Now, did I require some accommodation to achieve my grades? Absolutely. But the academic standards were the same. 
So I think that you can offer accommodation of a certain degree to disadvantaged groups because they are disadvantaged without simply saying you do not have to meet the academic standards of this institution or that I'm going to favor you because of the color of your skin. That's not the way that America is supposed to work. We don't get rid of discrimination by encouraging other discrimination. I will never understand that circular logic that says if we just discriminate against different people, then discrimination will end. The next aspect of this that I want to bring to your attention is that I have been the victim of affirmative action light. And what I mean by that is I have felt the pain of getting a job in large part because of my disability and then having employers pat themselves on the back for employing the disabled guy, but not really believing that I could be a difference-making employee. To give you an example, I was a telemarketer for 10 and a half years for a nonprofit organization that I truly believed in. My desire within three months of working there was to work there for the rest of my career. I was like, if I could put 35 years in at this company, that would be great. So I actually went to the HR department of this company and I said, can you please give me a rundown of the positions in this company so that I can give some good thought into what position I might want to do full time for you after I graduate from college. And the HR department acquiesced and gave me a list and I studied it and I decided I want to do PR for them eventually when I graduate. And I actually applied for, I think, three or four promotions within the company. And each time I was turned down. Now, of course, they're going to try to hire the best person, and I'm not going to say that they absolutely had to hire me. But the fact that I could not get promoted to save my life after three or four attempts really made me feel like they were just happy hiring the disabled guy. And they were able to say, hey, we have a disabled guy working here. We can feel good about it. But we don't actually think that he can accomplish anything as an employee. And that's literally the way I felt. The position that I held before that was a telemarketing position uh, for a retailer. And that retailer kept me in the position for three months and then let me go. Three weeks to a month after I was let go, this retailer was in the paper getting an award for how much good they'd done as a diversity hire and hiring people with disabilities. But the whole time I was there, I was treated like a second-class citizen. They didn't listen to me when I talked about the shifts that worked best for me to work. And by the way, I'm a high school senior at this point. 
still have high school work to do, but they scheduled me mostly for mornings, even as a high school senior. I told them about my transportation issues. I had a service dog, which they eventually forbade from coming in to work, which hindsight is they can't really do that. But these are the things that I faced. And it was really an awful experience. And yet at the end of the day, they got praised for hiring people like me. The second place that I was speaking about, this nonprofit that I wanted to be with for 25 to 35 years, they, as I said, continued to not promote me, no matter how hard I tried. And after 10 years as a telemarketer, it was time to move on. I faced the same thing working at a local uh Nonprofit here in downtown Grand Rapids. Worked there for a year. Never was able to move out a part-time. I was a volunteer coordinator, and they actually said that the way to keep my job was to come in on my days off to address issues that cropped up because I was only able to work three days a week. What did they do as soon as I left? They hired a full-time volunteer coordinator. Now, yes, they did add more to the job than just volunteer coordinator, but they didn't ask me if I was up for that task. They didn't challenge me to rise to the occasion. They simply waited until I left before they changed the job. In my last formal employment situation, I was in a place where I finally felt like I was appreciated for who I was. I worked in a school, and for four out of five years, it was great. I loved my job. I loved the kids that I got to work with. But again, in the fifth year at this institution, My role was marginalized, and I was not, again, thought of as an employee that could carry the weight of a real job. Now, I'm not going to tell you that every person that I worked with felt this way or that it was a overt way to discriminate against me. But what I am saying to you is that I would far rather be hired by a company because they think that Andrew Gomison would be a good employee than to be hired because I'm disabled. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to not be hired because I'm disabled, so I know this is a challenge, but what I am telling you is affirmative action isn't the answer. And when we talk about academic institutions, we have an academic standard. A few years ago, there was a kerfuffle because people said, well, the academic standard at Michigan is too high for minority students to get in. But they didn't talk about tutoring students and helping them work harder so they could reach the academic standard. 
They simply talked about lowering it to make it easier. And I don't know about you, but from the personal experience that I just related and from thinking about this logically, I know that I don't want to be at an employer because they had pity on me and they wanted to welcome me in for the sake of diversity. That's a horrible reason to get a job. We need to set up academic institutions in such a way that people are challenged to reach new heights of achievement and to become better people as a result of having been there so that they can then become better employees and better citizens. That should be the goal of our society. Instead of saying, what quotas can we reach? How many minority people can we get in here so we look like we're doing a good job? The next story that I have to share is a little bit more on the fun side of things. You may have heard that Pat Sajak recently announced his retirement from Wheel of Fortune. It did not take long for Wheel of Fortune to solve this puzzle. Hey, everybody, thank you. When longtime host Pat Sajak steps down at the end of next season, Ryan Seacrest will become the new master of ceremonies for the syndicated game show. Well, the announcement was made Tuesday, just two weeks after Sajak's retirement news. Seacrest said in a statement, I'm truly humbled to be stepping into the footsteps of the legendary Pat Sajak, adding, I can't wait to continue the tradition of spinning the wheel and working alongside the great Vanna White. Many fans wondered if White would be the one taking the wheel of the popular game show, or Sajak's daughter Maggie. Even Whoopi Goldberg expressed interest on The View. I want that job. Well, now we, oh, we figured it out. Fortune is one of the most watched game shows in history, now averaging more than 9 million viewers a night, according to Sony Pictures Television. Man, it's our 40th season. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. My name is Pat Sajak. Sajak first took the reins from host Chuck Woolery in 1981 and helped catapult Wheel into the longest-running syndicated game show of all time. Sajak has won three daytime Emmys for Outstanding Game Show Host, but his successor's resume is pretty impressive, too. Seacrest's career spans more than two decades. Try this one. Is it Peach or is it Bob? No, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Hosting live with Kelly and Ryan to his nationally syndicated radio program. Ariana Grande in the flesh. To his 21 seasons as MC of the groundbreaking singing competition American Idol. He even took over for another legend, Dick Clark, as the host of New Year's Rockin' Eve. Seacrest now adding to his full plate as the Wheel of Fortune spin master. In addition to serving as host, Seacrest will also serve as a consulting producer. Wheel of Fortune's next season is set to begin airing in September, and Seacrest says he plans to learn as much as he can from Sajak in the interim. And guys, an interesting note, Seacrest is 48 years old, which means he was just six when Sajak took over as host. Back to y'all. Okay, so first of all, I will tell you that I do like Ryan Seacrest. I watched several seasons of American Idol. I think he does a great job with that. I think he has a charismatic personality. But I don't think that he's the right choice for Wheel of Fortune. 
Here's why. Because Pat Sajak is an institution. He was the host for over 40 years. He's the longest serving game show host of all time because he was able to surpass Alex Trebek by a few seasons over on Jeopardy. I feel like Ryan Seacrest just kind of walks around picking up jobs. And when I think of the host of Wheel of Fortune, I think of it as being someone who is ready to do a job for the long haul, ready to make a 20 to 30 year commitment to the show because of how iconic it is. Now, I could be wrong, but since Ryan recently stepped down from live with Kelly and Ryan after six years, which I'll admit I didn't realize it was that long. I felt like it was much shorter. But he stepped down after six years, supposedly because his girlfriend didn't want him to be so committed to something like that. And then he picks up Wheel of Fortune, which is five to ten times more iconic than Live with Kelly. I mean, I just don't get it. I thought they could have done a more exhaustive search. I guess Pat Sajak, you know, predicted almost 10 years ago that he thought Ryan Seacrest would take his position, so this is not completely a shock. Um, And probably after what we saw with Jeopardy, they didn't want all the drama that was involved there with the myriad of guest hosts and then choosing someone or rather the executive producer choosing himself to be the host only to be kicked out in scandal. And then Ken Jennings and Mayim Bialik were selected. I think they wanted to be much more sure of themselves, but here's the the thing that's interesting about that is the whole thing with guest host on Jeopardy was because Alex Trebek died. He couldn't continue the job. So someone had to stand in the gap while they looked. Pat Sajak gave Wheel of Fortune a year advance notice. He's still going to be the host next season. Seacrest doesn't take over until the following year. So we're talking about September of 2024 before Seacrest even gets behind the wheel. And yet they couldn't take a little bit more time to choose a suitable full-time host. I'm, I'm just a little surprised by that. And I know people will have a different opinion than me, and that's part of life is people having different opinions. But my personal opinion about this was that I think if they want to take their time in making this decision, or if they wanted to, they obviously did not because they've already chosen Seacrest. But I said if they wanted to, one thing they could do is make Vanna White the interim host until they found someone more permanent. And the reason I say that is Vanna is quite a bit younger than Pat, but she's still nearing retirement age. So if she had a few seasons to be the host while they found a more permanent solution, that would have been great because it would have continued to have the legacy of the original hosts by having Vanna as the host, and they could have had Maggie say Jack on the letters. They didn't ask me, however, so 
it doesn't really matter because it, the decision has already been made. And I do wish Ryan Seacrest the best. I was just a little bit taken aback by the swiftness of this decision. And perhaps it's something that they agreed upon before Pat even made his announcement uh, because it was very fast. But that's just my two cents on the changing of the guard at Wheel of Fortune. You know, Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy have always been an important part of my life. I don't watch Wheel as much as I watch Jeopardy. There are often times when I'm working on something and I'll just, you know, wait for Wheel to be over and then I'll go out in the living room and watch Jeopardy with my family. So Wheel isn't as iconic, but I do have fond memories, especially of going over to my grandparents and watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy with them uh, at night and how fun that was. So it's an important part of my childhood, and I guess my hope is that Ryan will be respectful of the nostalgia and that he'll stick around because I really think that if you're going to take over something like Wheel of Fortune, you have to have longevity on your mind. All right, well, we're wrapping up today's show with one more story about college, and this one has to do with Biden's attempt to do some college loan repayment. Shannon Bream, we have another decision here on student loans. Okay, we actually have two, so we're trying to parse okay. through this. The first case dealt with the individual borrowers, and what the courts deci- decided unanimously, Justice Alito wrote this, is that they don't have standing. So the case with the individual borrowers, they don't have standing, meaning they don't go anywhere on the merits of the case. But we're now getting in the second case. This is written, I believe, by the Chief Justice John Roberts, saying that the group of states who sued, it appears that they do have standing. So with that in mind, we now need to get to the guts of the case. It's 6-3. We know the Chief is writing for the majority and Justice Kagan is dissenting along with Justice Sotomayor and Jackson, which gives us a hint which way we think the case is going to go. Um, but it looks like at least one of these cases says that there is standing for the states. Now, what they decide on the merits, we are still reading and the hard copies are coming my way. But again, one of the cases tossed as we thought on standing. The other one does get to the merits by the dissent. And um, that's a trick I learned long ago is that you look at the this. Um, here we go. It says the court's uh, the court agrees with the states, this group of states. Here is Jack. Two Thank you, Jack. Up. Okay. Um, that the HEROES Act, that's what the Biden administration had used um, to justify forgiving part of the student loans. Um, it doesn't authorize the debt forgiveness plan. So let me get here and um, make sure that I've got the right one. That one does not count. Um, so, again, it looks like this is written by the Chief Justice, and it looks like another 6-3. Yes, Chief Justice Roberts, Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett join him. Uh, Justice Barrett files a concurring opinion. Um, Justice Kagan files the dissenting opinion. Sotomayor and Jackson write. Okay, this is the conclusion of what the court says. It's become a disturbing feature of some recent opinions to criticize the decisions for which they disagree as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary, because a lot of people didn't think they should take this case. Today we have concluded uh, that Missouri uh, is a proper case to this. Um, they've gone through the, the traditional tools of decision-making analysis. Um, reasonable minds can disagree. Um, and they say it's important that the public not be misled by some of what they're hearing about the court, which is interesting because there's been so much said about the court. It says um, the HEROES Act provides 
provides no authorization for the secretary. Remember, this is Secretary of Education's plan, even when examined using the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation, let alone clear congressional authority for such a program. So first blush of this reading um, sounds like the student loan debt forgiveness plan is gone. Uh, it is not going to move forward in a 6-3 ruling. So they, the Supreme Court has struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program, on which he tried to use the HEROES Act. And mm-hmm. the court is saying in a 6-3 decision that is not going to be allowed. So there are uh, millions of borrowers, 26 million, who had applied mm-hmm. for this program who are finding out today that that is not going to be something that they will be able to take advantage of. And, Shannon, what's interesting is that leading up to this over the last few years, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, even President Biden himself, said, we don't have the legal authority to do this. This would not be constitutional. And yet they did it anyway. Was this the the way for them to get to a decision so that they can say to the people agitating from their left that this is not constitutional, so therefore we can't do it. Let's find another way, perhaps economic growth, maybe tax cuts or something, to help people who are having a hard time paying their loans. Well, and this is going to be another, uh, now that the president is officially on this re-election campaign, this is going to be another argument that he uses saying, I tried to get you those student loan forgiveness, um, you know, debt forgiveness plans done, but the quote MAGA court, which is what the left has been calling them this week, they weren't the first part of the week when they liked the decision, but they're calling that now because they didn't like yesterday's decision. They're not going to like this one. He's going to say it was the Supreme Court stacked full of Trump appointees who kept me from giving you the student loan debt forgiveness. you got to imagine that's what's being crafted in their speech, and that's what they'll say okay let's discuss another hot button issue first of all i want to bring to your attention again something at the end of the clip where both nancy pelosi and joe biden said there's no constitutional authority that we have to do this but we're going to try to push it through anyway so now they're going to turn around and say because of trump's supreme court we can't give you the loan relief that we want to Which, first of all, I want to freely acknowledge that this shows the importance of a president's ability to appoint Supreme Court justices. We need to be careful about who becomes president because he does have the authority to appoint these justices. I do want to mention something in relation to both of these stories, but it was brought up, I think, on the clip of the first story regarding college, and that is people are talking again about wanting to pack the court, wanting to increase the size of the Supreme Court. Why? Because it's not leaning the way that they want it to. But if I could just bring to your attention the fact that almost every president has the opportunity at some point in their time as president to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And so the way that we are doing the Supreme Court right now is a good way. And the only reason that the liberals want to pack the Supreme Court is because they want more justices that will affirm their agenda. I guarantee you if Ron DeSantis was now president and he wanted to pack the Supreme Court, they would not like it. I think nine is a good number for the Supreme Court. I know that it's gone up and down through the years. I think you have to have an uneven number because there has to be a tiebreaker, and I think nine is a good number. 
But aside from that, let's look at this decision on its face. We've talked about the fact that even the leaders on this, the point people on this, have said this is not legal. Why is this? Because the Congress can authorize loan repayment. But the president can't unilaterally do that without Congress. This is what checks and balances are about. Now, Joe Biden was using the HEROES program as an excuse to push this forward. And it said that in cases of national emergency, you can authorize loan repayment or loan freezes. And I think this was first authorized after 9-11 to help students who were the children of those who were victimized by 9-11 to get the help they needed. And then the emergency that Biden was using when he put this together was COVID. Even though, for all intents and purposes, COVID has been over for at least the last year and a half, if not two years. He was still using COVID as that emergency. And that's part of the reason why a lot of leaders have a hard time letting go of calling something a national emergency because as long as they have a national emergency on their hands, they have power. And that's why some people have said that as long as you give presidents and other people of power unilateral authority in times of emergency, they will create emergencies in order to have unilateral power. I mean, we don't like to think about that, but that's the case. So the court is basically saying the president does not have the authority to unilaterally authorize this, and there's no standing on the emergency that he's talking about because COVID is no longer an emergency. Them's the facts. So how do I feel about student loan forgiveness? I would say on the surface, I would say that I'm not totally opposed to some kind of student forgiveness program. If the Congress wanted to come together and say, let's work out a package for students to be forgiven part of their student loans, I would not be opposed. But here's where I do have a problem with it. I have a problem with it because the biggest problem with student loans right now is that they're federalized. They come through the government, and the government did this because they said that it would help people, but they're not helping people. They're just helping people go into debt. And my thing is, whatever loan repayment that you choose to have, it will only work if you cut off the spigot that's running now. If you're going to forgive somebody that already went to college ten dollars or $20,000 of debt, but then you're going to offer to the class of 2024 or the class of 2025 the same loans that you have been forgiving, then you're not solving any problems. See, this is something that the government does too well. They will make a problem worse, then solve half of it, and act like they're being benevolent to you. And that is just so wrong. It's like when you get excited about an income tax return. 
it's your money in the first place. So it's not really all that exciting because you have to fill out the paperwork and submit it. And then they give you back part of the money that you really should have in the first place. So I say that loan forgiveness is a good thing as long as you change the practice that caused this in the first place. And one of the ways you do that is you don't act like college is an end-all be-all for everyone. There are so many ways to go about a career that don't involve college. And I think it's time that we emphasize those. And we can make college more affordable by having reasonable teacher salaries and reasonable teacher expectations. We need to make sure that we're not just trying to do a temporary fix because that's what this student loan repayment would be, a temporary fix. If we're not willing to start at the source of the problem, we are just fixing things temporarily. The other thing is delayed gratification and working hard for a goal is important. I don't know if you knew this about me, but I paid every dime of my college education. And that motivated me because I knew that if I failed a class, I was the one that was going to have to pay for it again. And so I really think that we need to encourage a system where we're encouraging people to work hard for what they want. And that means working hard for the college degree. I remember several years ago, Dave Ramsey said, if you want to have a free college degree, you should apply for a thousand scholarships and hope you get 40. Now I know that the landscape is always changing, so I'm not sure how that would work out in practicality today but the point is there are a lot of scholarships out there if you're willing to take the time to fill out the applications and do the essays. And scholarships are a lot better than loans. The thing is, loans make you feel like you can accomplish anything because you sign for the loan and then you can go about your college education but then you graduate from college and you're behind the eight ball. And like I said, if Congress wanted to come up with a situation or a solution that made sense, I could get on board with it. If Congress came up with a legislation that said, if you give two years of community service, we will knock off such and such amount of your college loans, I would be all for it because you're still working to pay off your education. I love the fact that in education, if someone that gets a teaching degree wants to go to a public institution, especially one that's in a, in a worse educated neighborhood and give of themselves in that institution, that they can get loans forgiven. I love that. Because that motivates people to put in the work 
to get their loans paid off. So I'm not saying never pay people's loans off. I'm not saying don't help them. What I'm saying is it can't just be this check that you can expect from the government to pay you back. And the money has to come from somewhere too. So it comes from the pockets of the taxpayers. And how are the people who already worked their butts off to pay off their college loans supposed to feel? I hope this has given you some things to think about today. I would appreciate your feedback on any or all of these stories. Who do you think should be the host of Wheel of Fortune? If you want to contact me with any comments or questions about today's episode, please feel free to do so with the contact information that's about to roll. With that being said, I will simply say, for Culture Watch, this is Andrew Gomison saying, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.